Hi, friends. Allie Domersant here, host of the Snapshot Testimony podcast. This is a podcast that explores the pivotal moments that shape a life of faith in Christ. This week, extra special, I'm talking with cold case homicide detective and popular apologist, Jay Warner Wallace. Now, for more than half of his life, he was a committed atheist. But then his wife asked if they could start going to church, not to learn about God, but really just so that they could raise their kids with traditional values. But as he sat in church, he heard one statement from the pastor that launched the most life-changing cold case investigation he'd ever taken on. And we really had never been in this setting for anything other than the stuff that most atheists would go to church for, which is, you know, some ceremony or a, a wedding or somebody dies. Um, mm -hmm. So I that really wasn't familiar with what's, what happens in that setting outside of a wedding service, you know? And that's the same, <laughs> almost the same thing every time you go. Yeah. So, so um, but I get in there and the pastor talked about Jesus like he really existed and like he was the smartest man. He even said it. He said he was the smartest man who ever lived. And that, that, provoked me to at least want to know what was so smart about the teaching of Jesus. Um, Why did is, that comment? Why that comment? Um, did you, if being honest with yourself, did you, did you consider yourself an intellectual, a pretty smart guy? Did that offend? Was it a pride thing of like, who is this guy that's supposed to be so smart? Or was it just, that's an odd thing. I haven't heard it before. Well, I had not heard of Jesus described that way before. Okay. For sure. Um, and I was interested, like, so for, if, 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 if you could have gotten the wisdom statements of ancients were always interesting to me because you, from a prideful perspective, you're just going to steal them, right? You're, if there's something <laughs> that somebody said that was smart that you might end up repeating in some yeah. form for yourself. And then all your buddies think that you're so smart when in fact, you're just repeating Baha'u'llah or Buddha or, or even Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. Uh, I was more than willing to, um, look at him that way, mm -hmm. uh, that there might be some, so here's here's what I would have said about scripture. If to the extent that scripture, the Christian scripture, might describe something true, well, then the question becomes, well, how does it how how does that writer know that this is true? Well, it might just be that if you have an ancient people group that writes about humans' behavior long enough, they're probably likely to catch something true about human behavior. This yeah. does not mean it has to be divinely inspired. This just means that these folks might have some ancient wisdom that mm -hmm. that is still true today. And so mm -hmm. I'm interested in that. Um, so when he because, says this, this, um, yeah, he's the, the smartest guy. Yeah. Yeah. What you grabbed onto it and did what with it? Um, I bought a Bible <laughs> to see what was so smart <laughs> about see. Jesus. And I bought it. It's still sitting on my shelf back here. It's a pew Bible. I think I spent six or $7. I'm not sure what they cost now. Um, and it's got, you know, not, not a great Bible in the sense that it's not like, um, got a great margin size. I mean, I just tore it up. I just wanted to see what was, mm -hmm. as I read through the gospels, you know, you, I think a lot of non-Christians don't know what the new Testament says yes. or has mm -hmm. contains. So they might think of it more like the letters section of the new Testament than the gospels section. Like, like I didn't expect that there was going to be a, a description offered by somebody who wants me to believe this series of events occurred in a particular sequence at a particular time in history at a particular location on the planet. That's a claim about that's, these are historical claims. Yeah. And, and so I, that's very different than, than maybe just theological claims or wisdom statements. So, right. so that's what provoked me. I, I'm reading through these claims to get the words of Jesus. You got to read these narratives. 
And then you start asking yourself, well, should I trust that any of this stuff really happened? Hmm. Well, that's a claim. That's really about testing an account. Um, and, and I would you know, clearly too are not eyewitness accounts. You know, uh, Mark is unless you know Mark's not, not really there at the time this occurs, and there's no reason to believe he is. But he is, uh, according to the most ancient um, students of the eyewitnesses, he is um, scribing the account of Peter. And there's there's good reason to believe that's the case. And so that's one way to look at it. And then of Luke, Luke tells you he's not he was not there for the life of Jesus, but he did have access to the eyewitness because he's writing so early that the eyewitnesses are still alive. So he's able to um, uh, source those people. But then you have Matthew and John who are claiming to have been the disciples of if, you know, of course, the question is, were these really written by the people whose names are on the books? If they are written by those people, can we test them in some way to know if they're reliable eyewitness accounts? Well, that's the stuff that I started getting involved in because I was, this is what I did for a living. So, mm -hmm. so uh, there was no other way in for me. I mean, that yeah. was just the kind of, you know, if I, maybe if I was a philosopher, I would have examined the philosophical underpinnings of these statements to see if they were sound. That's not who I was. I was an eye, you know, I was talking to eyewitnesses constantly yeah. and there's a, there's a template that we use. And so that's what I started to do. I started to evaluate these accounts under the template. And when I got to a point where I was like, yeah, these, these accounts, they, they had passed the test in the d different ways we would test an account. So then the question becomes, am I willing to bend my knee to it? So you can know everything there is to know about Jesus, but still not bend your knee to it. So, right. so, you know, it was a longer process for me. I probably, you know, six to nine months of, of, um, of, you know, testing and reading and just being absolutely obsessed with the, um, of the investigation part of it. These gospels were making claims about history and there were a number of historical documents I could find that would at least help me to corroborate some of this or to, to, uh, to, you know, to falsify if it's not true. Um, and so I just, it, for me, it was an examination of all kinds of first century accounts and um, trying to dig through it and see if, if even eyewitnesses often will say things that can be tested internally. In other words, I don't need a corroborative source of, of, of evidence to, to corroborate the statement. There'll be something that the witness says that is either internally contradictory or uh, supports itself in some way. And so I, I was doing all that stuff to see if the uh, gospel authors were legitimate. Yeah. Now your background, 35 years as a cold case homicide mm -hmm. detective in Los Angeles, right? Yep. But you are tackling some pretty hardcore cases. Did your training just automatically kick in as you're reading these claims? Or did you make a decision one day and say, I'm going to take what I know and mm -hmm. apply it through this grid? Was it automatic or was it intentional? Well, I think it was just... Um kind of reflexive, you know, like okay. that was just, in other words, I didn't like think, oh, well, I'm going to take this. I, I just, I just didn't know any other way in. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you kind of get a sixth sense about, and it's just experience, right? So you're going to get some training and you're in this job. They're going to send you to classes on interrogation and interview. They're going to send, I did a bunch of stuff with forensic statement analysis, and these are just academic classes that they don't really measure it. It's just a way to begin. And then of course, you know, the number of years you're interviewing witnesses will also uh, f factor in. 
Um, so that's, that definitely happened for me. So a lot of this was just instinctively, you know, when someone lies to you, you've been lied to enough times. Now, of course, a lot of times what we'll do as a default is we'll just assume from the beginning that everyone's a liar because yeah. then you're, you're probably not going to get fooled much. Um, and so that's kind of the approach that, that often you'll see that kind of cynicism, uh, on the part of police officers and it can be a liability. So, you know, you've seen this in culture in the last couple of years where people will say something and a couple won't believe them. Um, don't believe you. You're a liar. Yeah. And that's not so much because the cop's a jerk, although the cop might be a jerk. But but a lot of times that's just a, a strategy, uh, a way in that protects you from being fooled and ultimately will lead you to whoever's guilty. Like if you assume everyone's not is, is telling you the truth, then no one is ever going to go to jail. But if you assume that everyone's a liar, eventually you'll you'll figure out which ones aren't and yeah. somebody will remain as the suspect in a case. So for me, my default position was these accounts are, are false. They are okay. the effort of people who want to fool me uh, because there's either power, money, or sex, um, which is the three reasons why anyone tries to fool anyone. Mm -hmm. um, and if you learn, you learn these working cases. So I needed to know, were these folks who made these claims about Jesus driven by those three motives? Because those are the, the only three reasons why anyone ever lies. So I, it was easy to test. Yeah. And that's one of the things I had to test is to see what, what, what benefited these people, what benefited Paul in terms of money, in terms of sex, or in mm -hmm. terms of power. And power is very nuanced. It's probably 70% of all motive. Yeah. You know, power can be like, I've been disrespected, uh, therefore I'm going to shoot you. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be, um, I, don't, I think that my race is superior to yours. That's a pride issue. That's a subset of power. It can be that I think my pleasure is more important than your inconvenience. Um, these are subsets of power, authority, respect. Uh, this ends up being a lot of motive for bad behavior. And so if, if I'm thinking these guys are lying to us about Jesus, well, then I know how to test it. It's only going to be one of those three things. Right. So what what red flags did you not find? Because if, if you approach it where you're looking for inconsistencies, you're looking for um, motive, like what's the, one of those three? What do they have to gain? What did you not find maybe that you were expecting to? What red flags weren't there? Well, I can tell you the one thing that people often will point to are the differences in the Gospels. We're reading through, my wife and I are reading through the Gospel of Luke right now again. And and as I'm going through it, you know, I always see so much. Every every time you read through the Gospels, you find something you didn't see earlier. Yeah. Um, and and you see, there's lots of different uh, what you, what I think a skeptic would say are deal killing contradictions between the accounts. Jesus is going to commission his um, se several of his disciples to go and do work in local villages, and he's going to tell them in one Gospel. Um, d um, let's say, for example, take your sandals. Um, and another gospel, he'll say, don't take your sandals. And so, the, the, well, that's just, how do I reconcile that? Well, I think I can tell you that, that those kinds of things were not as problematic to me because this is very common in eyewitness accounts. You'll get what appear to be contradictory accounts, even when the thing just occurred two hours ago. And you get there two hours late, and now you're interviewing five witnesses. And now all of a sudden, how can you be so different? How can you be so, quote unquote, wrong about mm -hmm. the same issue when you just saw it two hours ago? Give me an example of, of what that might look like in a real life case. No. Was he wearing a t-shirt or was he, was, he, was he not wearing a t-shirt? Did he Was the car white? Did he run to a car or did he not run to a car? Mm -hmm. No, he just walked out. Well, how do, okay, so, did he run out? No, he just walked out. He just walked, he popped around the corner. 
Well, okay, did you, now you got to ask some clarifying questions. Did you see him walk all the way to the corner? Or are you assuming this? In other words, people have certain assumptions that they make. And when they, when they, well, just give, give an example on the, on the account of the sandals. Did, did he take sandals or not? Well, everyone's wearing sandals. I, I don't think Jesus is saying, um, take off your sandals. <laughs> you know, I want you to go barefoot. I think what he's saying is don't take anything extra. Yeah. You're going to be, you, you the sandals on your feet. You don't take an extra pair. So I think that's a better way to understand the differences is that, yes, he, he did not say they could not wear sandals, but he did say, don't take an extra pair because he would, did this all about it. Just take whatever you need for this trip. This is it. And then be utterly dependent on everyone else uh, for, for anything else you need beyond that. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's a way about how are we going to read those two things? Well, you see this all the time in eyewitness accounts because you're going to have to ask the question, you know, if someone says, hey, this like the angels at the tomb. One account appears there's one angel, and the other account there's two. But it turns out that in the one account, it's just referring to the angel who's speaking, and only one of those two angels spoke. So wow. if you were to talk to that witness, it might sound like there's only one angel. If you talk to that witness in a trial, it might only sound like there's one person who was there behind the counter. No, that was the one who was talking. If you had a chance to ask a follow-up question, well, was there anyone else standing behind the counter? <laughs> well, yeah. Then yeah. you get some clarification. You just can't do that, though, in cold cases because in cold, our cold cases, these are cases where people have died. It's It's been a while. And now the people who used to be available to give you a statement, they're no longer with you. I can't mm-hmm. ask a clarifying question. It's much like the Gospels. I have no access to those people to say, okay, well, hold, step, hold on. You're only mentioning one angel. So tell me, are you saying there's just one angel there? Right. Right? That would be a good clarifying question. Yeah. I don't want to tell her how many I think I'm trying to get to. I just want to know, was that the only angel there? And, and then that person would have the opportunity to say, well, no, but that's the one who spoke to me. Then you then it clarifies what appears to be a contradiction, and you just don't have that option with the gospels, and so you have to. This is true also for cold cases, and so you can determine what's true, even though there might appear to be a contradiction. Mm. Did you have a moment that it clicked? A lot of people have kind of you might call it an aha moment or a, mm-hmm. a real moment of revelation or clarity, where all of a sudden you 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 cross over and you are an unbeliever and then you are a believer. Did you have a moment that stands out in your mind? Well, there's all kinds of small moments of clarity. And usually those come for me, at least when I've got an open question, this happens in the gospels a lot. For example, you'll see if all you have was the gospel of Luke, that it appears that from the moment of baptism of Jesus, that the first thing he's ever going to do is in Nazareth, in his hometown where he walks into the synagogue. And he's not going to be respected in his own hometown. Yeah. And if all you have is Luke, you'll see that when he walks into that, it appears he goes right from the baptism to Nazareth. There's nothing described in between. You don't know how much time there is in between. And then he gets into Nazareth and someone in the synagogue says, do for us what you did in Capernaum. Well, he wasn't in Capernaum. There's no record of any of that it, in Judea. It, he, he goes from the baptism to Nazareth. Well, no, of course, if you look at John's account, you'll see that he did a bunch of stuff. And mm. these folks in Luke's account are referring to the stuff that Luke doesn't even mention. Right. Okay. And so you you have a bunch of these unintended corroborative moments where where the story of Jesus is best understood when all of the accounts are are seen together. Because each eyewitness will only bring you only brings you a fraction 
of what actually happened. And that's why I, I only ask for one thing when I respond to a, a crime scene, to a murder scene, if it's a fresh murder, just have the officer on the scene separate the eyewitnesses because I want to retain all of the differences so that when I get there and do all of this, I will be the one to puzzle them all together in sequence. And it just makes it more legitimate that without no, without you know mentioning it specifically, this person says that, yeah, um, when he's in, in that synagogue in Nazareth, somebody is talking about some stuff he did somewhere else. And that would be a mystery to you, except you have another eyewitness account that tells you that, yes, in fact, he was there prior to Nazareth. And he did this stuff over in Capernaum. And that's what they're talking about. And that when you see that kind of stuff in eyewitness accounts and they kind of puzzle together, you go, okay, I could have some sense that um, this is not a deliberate hoax that is it's pretty clever if it is, because it just turns out that these things all puzzle together in a way that makes sense if in fact it really happened and four or five eyewitnesses saw it and each mentions to you what they think is important. So I had tons of small aha moments as I was puzzling these together, mm -hmm. going, oh, okay, this is what I would expect, right? Because this is what happens with every set of eyewitnesses. It's unintentional eyewitness corroboration. And you see this all the time. They don't know that they're providing me with data that now answers a question I have over here, but they provide me with this data because I never asked them. They just provided it. And then sure enough, it makes sense of the other person's testimony. Well, that's kind of unintentional, but it does. That's what I see all the time. So I started to kind of log those. I was having those kinds of aha moments. Of course, there's all kinds of ways you can look at other for, uh, features of corroborative evidence, which I talk about in a book called Cold Case Christianity. That's the yeah. stuff I was collecting. But in the end, you can know all of this is true and still not be a Christ follower. The demons right. know it's true and they aren't they aren't Christians. So so what is the difference? Well, the difference is 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 will you not will you stop looking at the New Testament for what it says about Jesus? and start looking at it for what it says about you. Mm. You're never going to move from belief that to belief in until you shift your focus off, okay, now I've tested it for Jesus, but do I trust what it says about me? Because the, the statements about us are pretty clear that we are we are all rebellious and fallen, wretched. and we all run from God. We do none of us seek God willingly. This is not something we are natural man. It's constantly in tension. Right, we don't, and we are sinners in need of a savior. And um, until you believe that, you won't look to a savior. Uh, but if you've already done the hard, the heavy lifting, and you already know there is a savior, then when you discover you need one, you know where to go. And so, a lot of this for me that that so that's kind of when the last light bulb is going to go on. Yeah. And you know, I I can remember where I was when I was reading through Romans, and I realized that this guy Paul was talking about me. And I think until you, you get to that point, uh, this is all just data collection. <laughs> you know, this is just, you're, you're never going to internalize it and, and embrace it as a truth that changes your life. Now, when you realize this is Romans, what was it? Romans seven, eight, were you in that area? Yeah, I read through all of Romans and all of First Corinthians because there's a bunch of stuff in First Corinthians about the natural man versus the uh -huh. spiritual man that is also helpful if you're trying to figure out who you are. Yeah. And, and I had read that before. Right? <laughs> well, I had read that before. I read through the entire New Testament. Then I went back and I focused on the Gospels because I first remember I was looking for wisdom statements, wisdom statements of Jesus, red letter stuff. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff in the, the letters too that I would have said if all I'm doing is collecting wisdom for the ages, a ton of stuff that Paul talks about is also wisdom for the ages, although I don't have to believe all that God stuff. So, so I think that, you know, I was looking at all of it, but it wasn't until I had finished testing the, the Gospels. 
that I trusted the New Testament enough to trust what it said about me. Because you've got to think about it. Uh, wisdom statements about your nature are really hard to, tr- to test. You might say, well, that yeah. sounds like me, but somebody else could say it doesn't sound like me. But claims that occur in history that aren't dependent on your experience, that are objectively to, they're, they're grounded outside of your own understanding of yourself. They're grounded in, did this occur last week here in town? Right? That's, that, I have nothing to do. My opinion can't change that. Either it occurred here last week in town or it didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a different kind of claim. And that's what Christianity offers. It's not like a series of wisdom statements from Buddha. Uh, no, this is actually makes a claim about history. You cannot test wisdom statements the same way you can test claims about history. So I was the kind of person that I don't, I, I can accept these. I, I don't have to trust any of these wisdom statements. They can't really be tested, but, but claims about history can. And if it right. turns out the same book that gives me the wisdom statements also gives me a claim about history I can test, I'm far more likely to believe them. Wow. So what do you remember about the day or the season of life that you were in when you actually became a Christ follower? When you just when you passed, crossed over and took that step of faith. Okay, I believe I've tested the evidence. I believe this all is true. Now I believe it's true for me and I got a decision to make. Well, I think what the biggest difference, of course, is that you begin the the spiritual tug of war that that that, that Paul talks about in Romans seven. You know, you're, you're not having that tug of war in your heart when you are your own god. There's there's not like this sense that that what I think and want to think as a fallen human is in tension with God's spirit saying I shouldn't think it. It's just that tug of war between the natural and spiritual man that does not occur until you are saved, and then you start to see it and feel it constantly. You know better. And God's spirit is constantly reminding you that there's a better way, that there's, this is not, this is not godly. This is not from God. That's not in your head. If you don't believe there's a God and don't believe this is the word of God, that's only in your head. If you believe both of those things are true. Hmm. So you will have changed. But I, I, I will tell you though, that I am, I'm hesitant. I'm leery of experience. And the reason okay. why I'm okay. leery of experience is because, um, everyone's got one. So, so if you ask people around the country, you know, why are you a Christian? The two most popular answers are number one, I was raised in the church. I was raised this way. My parents were Christians. I've been, my whole life's been in the church or number two, I've had an experience that demonstrated for me that Christianity is true. And that could be a number of different kinds of experiences. I prayed for something. I saw a man of miraculous transformation. Um, something that demonstrated that Christianity was true by way of personal experience. Well, if you ask Mormons why they're Mormon, they'll tell you they were raised in a ward or they had an experience of the Holy Spirit that demonstrated for them that Joseph was a prophet of God and the Book of Mormon is true. You don't trust their experience. You shouldn't. You got to test experiences. So I'm always hesitant when someone says, yeah, I had this experience. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Right. But everyone, it turns out, if you're a Muslim, it's probably because you were raised or you had an experience. If you're a Buddhist, it's probably because you were raised or you had an experience. Like, why does our answer sound like every other theistic believer's answer when it doesn't have to? It could be that I'm a Christian because it's true in a way I can demonstrate evidentially. And whether I like it or not, it's true. And I'm in because... Yes, as my, my experience is, I didn't have a transformational experience unless you call all that investigation a transformational experience. I just mm-hmm. got to the point where I realized it was true, both in what it was saying about Jesus and in what it was saying about me. 
and my need for Jesus. And that's that changed everything for me. Now, so you know, it changed everything. And at the same time, maybe it didn't, did it feel, it didn't necessarily feel like it changed everything. Well, and I can tell you that I, I would be very leery of any uh, experience I would have. If I, I don't base anything on an experience. I just don't. I, I just, because every case you work is somebody who acted on the basis of what they thought was an experience they were having. Mm. If you thought people were more thoughtful about this or thought about this in a more evidential way, most of these crimes wouldn't even occur. But but the, the point I'm trying to make is that kind of um, um, skepticism about experience. Now, again, when I say that, your experience is a piece of direct evidence. There's only two forms of evidence, direct evidence and indirect evidence. Your direct access to your experiences is direct evidence. You're the eyewitness of your own experience. And it turns out that that is valuable evidence. But like any witness, we test eyewitnesses. We don't just believe anything they say. You shouldn't even believe anything you've experienced. You should test it because it may be something that you experienced reasonably and it's true, or maybe something you experienced emotionally and it's not true. We've all had those kinds of experiences. The heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Yeah. So we cannot trust our hearts, right? This is even true uh, in scripture. So the, the reality of it is, is that experiences have to be tested your own direct in, in, uh, evidence. If you're the eyewitness, I experienced something that I saw with my own eyes. Well, you would ask, I would, yeah, I would test any eyewitness, including me. You have to test eyewitnesses. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. And, and here's what I would some say. Some people bristle at this when you just, because certainly the evangelical church culture right now is very experiential. Yeah, which has it is. Its, has so its let me ask you a question. In the book of Acts, everyone who testifies as a disciple or apostle is selected on the basis of what? Their eyewitness their status. Eyewitness. Yeah. So you see it in, in Acts 1, upper room. Who does Paul, who does Peter select to replace Judas? He selects somebody who had seen Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection, an eyewitness of the entire event. Why? Because it's direct evidence. Two forms of evidence. Indirect, indirect. Direct evidence is eyewitnesses. Everything else is indirect. DNA, yeah. indirect. Uh, fingerprints, indirect. Everything else is indirect. It's eyewitness accounts that count. And what Jesus does is he tells Thomas, yep, you're going to touch me. I get it. But blessed are those, Thomas, who never see this, who will come to believe on the basis of your testimony, Thomas. Evidence. You'll be the, it's evidence. It's direct evidence. And so let me ask you a question. When testifying in the book of Acts, tell me who it is whose testimony is about their personal transformation. I'll wait. There is no <laughs> one. <laughs> they testify about the resurrection that they I got observed. a little nervous there. Like, oh, okay. no. Okay. <laughs> right? This is what they testify about. Even if you say, well, Paul talks about his, his – no, he's talking about having seen Jesus. He, and he's qualifying this. I'm not lying about it because I was raised as a religious Jew. I was the uh, had Gamaliel. I was I was like I had the best teachers. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But I'm on the road. The least likely person you would think would ever testify to this. I saw it with my own eyes. Everyone saw it with their own eyes. Testimony, that word used in the New Testament, is not about your personal experience. It's about testifying to the resurrection. Now, in this generation, we would be testifying to the evidence for the resurrection. Mm -hmm. But but it's not an either or. I would not say you would stop testifying about your own personal. You know, part of the thing you observed was your changed life. Right. But it cannot be the only thing you talk about. What would you say to the person? Because for you, the evidence led you 
to the experience. Right. Many, many people will have the reverse where they have the experience, but maybe they're listening and they don't really have much evidence. And that, oh, that can be yeah. that can be disorienting a little bit because then you go, how do do I know that any of what I believe is true? What well, do you no, I think say that, to I think person? that some yeah, when we do apologetics like this, we we make a case for Christianity. We're probably doing as much for Christians as we are for non Christians, right? I mean, 100%. probably probably more because what we're doing is you 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 can be in the right place by accident, <laughs> right? And and, sure. and so we would say that hey, people maybe who are find themselves um, um, worshiping Jesus and God and thinking about their salvation and the grace of God, but they're Mormons who have changed all of those definitions. And we would say, hey, can you can you hold the, the position you hold as a Mormon evidentially? No, you really can't because there's a thousand year history in the Book of Mormon from 600 BC to 400 AD that allegedly occurred on the North American continent. Yet, if that none of that stuff occurred, that right. none of it occurred, there's no archaeologist support, not a single Mormon name can be discovered anywhere in the dirt on the North American continent. Thousands, millions of people in several different people groups that there's not a single shred of evidence for. Hmm. So, you, you got to ask the question again, you could have an experience, but have you tested it to know if so? It turns out if you're a Christian right now, uh, you, you might be here by accident, you, or you know, in other words. You're here without knowing what the evidence is. To say. And does that mean you're a saved Christian? Yeah, yeah, of course. But but tell you what, your kids who are walking away, because they think it's just a personal opinion you hold, need to know from you something other than your experience, because they're going to say, that's your experience. That's not my experience. Mm. Yeah. No, so I, it turns I, I, out I, I, if all I, you cared about was the next generation of young people who might ask, yeah, but why do you think that's true? How about this? Let's just have an answer for that question that comes out of the mouths of an entire generation. They want two whys for every what. You are willing to tell them what you believe, but they want to know why do you think it's true? And if you think that, well, I had this experience. Well, everyone's got an experience and you don't believe in anyone else's experience who are not Christians. So why would you, 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 you see the problem in second oh, why, yeah. the second why is why should I care? So why is it true and why should I care Yeah, are two questions I think most of our young people want to know the answer to. I'm writing that one down. So we just have to, I think, be able to offer them two whys for every what. I was talking to a friend of mine, Jeff Myers, who is the president of Summit Ministries. It's a ministry for high schoolers, immersive experiences for high schoolers in Christian worldview. We were talking about how the difference, it used to be that, you know, it's not the godness of God that's under question. It's the goodness of God that's under question. I think that the, the, for a lot of people, the issue is that this is no longer beautiful, that Christianity is no longer good, mm -hmm. that it is seen as the, as the source of all misogyny and racism and homophobia and transphobia and every kind of phobia and ism you can think of that's negative in culture. People will say, well, probably if you hold that view, it's because you're a Christian. That's like the common denominator in all evil for a lot of people. Yeah. How do you respond to that? I mean- Well, I think we have to make a case for why does it matter? Like, is there anything good that emerges uniquely under a Christian worldview? This is why I wrote Person of Interest. It's, it's It turns out that everything that you think that matters as an atheist is utterly dependent on Jesus and his followers. All music, literature, art, education, science, these are all things that as you know them today Medicine. came to you <laughs> through Jesus and his followers.
And, and if you think that's not true, you just don't know anything about those histories. And that's why it's important for us to know those things because it turns out that that, that stuff matters to you because they are a reflection of the God of the universe who ought to matter to you. Yeah, this is still very, very, this is, this is where all goodness resides. Are you still investigating? Or I have, I have the, two open cases case and I just took a phone call last week from a, from a victim family that I, we still have some work to do on a couple of these, but I don't have to lead it. Uh, the, the people who are there now, um, you know, there's always a several generations of detectives who work on cold cases. You have the original guys, the reopening, and I was part of a lot of those. And now I'm still part of some of these where I won't be uh, probably the person who puts the cuffs on, but I, I will be somebody in that process, you know, that gets you there. What about on your faith journey? Are you still investigating there? Or do no, you feel I, like I most think I'm, your I'm, questions have been yeah. answered? Before I could make a step, I had to um, answer all my own questions first. Yeah. And, and most of my questions were the same questions that I get at college campuses. So, so I've, I've answered those questions for myself and I'm willing to share my answers with others if they're, if, if they're uh, helpful for them. But I, I think that once you, once you're in, um, I'm in, but I'm not in, look at, look, this step of faith that we're all taking is not evidence free. It's not blind. It's not, uh, having a faith in something that's unseen on the basis of what, on the basis of what is seen. Mm-hmm. Every, I, you can't, I can't show you what happened to that murder scene. You weren't there to see it, but you're going to make a decision on something you never saw based on what evidence we have you can see. And this is what all, all of faith's proclamations are, is that at the end of that evidence trail, there's a bunch of unanswered questions in front of every jury. I cannot answer all of their questions. They have to take a step at the end of the evidence trail across their unanswered questions to a verdict. Same is true for us as believers. I got lots of questions about God I can't answer, but there's more than enough evidence. So when I take that step, we call the step of faith. It's not blind. It's at the end of an evidence trail, but yes, there is a step because you can't answer every possible question. So I think we still take those steps and, and they are still steps of faith or trust, but they aren't blind. They are based on a direction that, and Jesus said this, if you don't believe in me, if you don't believe what I've told you, you can believe in the evidence of these miracles, can't yeah. you? And he tells this to John's disciples when they send, you know, he wants to know, John wants to know, are you, are you the one? He does miracles and go tell John what you just saw. Well, what is he doing? He's saying, Hey, I'm giving you more than enough reason. And, but apparently John has questions. We all have questions. There's still enough evidence in the trail to take a step. And that's what God's asking us to do. If you'd like to learn more about Jay Warner Wallace, go to coldcasechristianity.com. Snapshot Testimony is a Moody Radio podcast and short feature. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. If you could just take a minute or two and leave a rating or review, I would really appreciate it. Your honest feedback is really what drives an up and coming podcast like Snapshot Testimony because it gives other people a reason to give it a listen. I'm your host, Ali Domersant. Together, we're sharing the moments that shape our faith in Christ. Thanks for stopping by.